This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Torsten Bell. Welcome to this Resolution Foundation event. Now, this is part of a very large project, um, not an infrastructure project, which I'll come back to, but a very large intellectual project uh, being conducted by the Resolution Foundation and the London School of Economics, very kindly funded by the Nuffield Foundation into the future of the UK's economic strategy. The, um, and it's doing, been doing a lot of diagnosing over the past 18 months and is now moving into the doing phase because life that's just about diagnosing doesn't get us very far. We have to do something at some point and lots of papers in that project are going to be coming out over the course of the next few months. One about what the future economic strategy is for delivering better work in April, how a benefit system can lead to inclusive growth soon after that, how a trade strategy fits in with an economic strategy. So loads of papers over the course of the next few months. But a key theme actually in a number of those papers is investment. Investment in almost every sense. Private sector investment, public sector investment, human capital investment, and how Britain's, amongst Britain's problems, there are several, as well as opportunities, is that we've become a low investment nation. And what do we do about that, given that there's no such thing as a free lunch? What do we do about that? How do we raise that private sector investment? How do we raise public sector investment? How do we raise human capital investment? That is the plan. But today we're going to discuss the public investment bit of them, bit of that picture, which in some ways is easier because the government's actually got some direct control of it, whereas the, lots of firms are just saying to them they don't want to invest. And that's harder. Uh, that's harder to deal with. So this is the easy bit there-ish. So we're going to talk about public investment today. We're doing that because we published a paper and one of the authors, James Smith, the research director here, is going to give you a quick whistle-stop tour of that paper setting out a bit of the problem, a bit about why we think that problem is happening and what we might do about it. And then we have got an absolutely brilliant panel to talk about those answers, but also other answers to this problem to consider. And those will be really useful as we finalise this project over the course of the next 10 months. So first of all, you're going to hear from Lord Jim O'Neill, who has lots of different parts, bits of life. But it tells me here he's a British economist and a former commercial secretary to the Treasury. But he's also doing lots of things right now in terms of, and I hope he's going to tell us a bit about some of his Northern Gritstone work and other things as we go through. He's trying to get some actual investment to happen in some actual companies in the here and now. So you'll hear from Jim. Then you're going to hear from Dame Meg Hillier, MP, who one of the things James is going to talk about is the role of Parliament in public spending, which is very important despite almost never getting talked about. So you're going to hear from Meg because she's the chair of the Public Accounts Committee and does care about that spending, even if nobody else does. Well, lots of us do. Lots of you do. Okay, good, good. You can tell us that, Meg. So you're going to hear from Meg. And then you're going to hear from Jill Rutter, who's a senior fellow at the Institute for Government and also works at the UK and a Changing Europe. Great. Uh, think tank, but also at an individual level has been encouraging people to pay attention to these issues for a long time and in a lively fashion. And we all need that in life. Then we're going to hear from uh, all of you. Hopefully go on to Slido. The hashtag is deeply unimaginative, hashtag public investment, because, you know, that makes it easy for you. Go on there, put your questions in. We will manage to do a poll as well. And we're going to get all of that done by two because we need to invest. We need to do it quickly. All right. That's the plan. So, James, over to you. All right. Thank you, Torsten. Um, and I will try and be brief because it's such a great panel. Really looking forward to what people are having to say on all this. Um, I should thank also my co-author, Felicia Odampton, who um, uh, has been working my sort of long-suffering partner in crime on uh, putting all this together. Um, we, we're sort of aware that um, the subject for today, public investment, 
where we're basically worried that the government is not doing enough is coming on a day when the government is running around telling us how much they're actually doing. So um, there's, there's, a, there's a bit of a clash there. But let me show you to start with uh, why, we're, why we're worried. So uh, these are charts basically of total investment on the left, uh, public investment on the right. And what we're doing is comparing both of those relative to the size of the economy and putting the UK relative to other rich countries that we should compare ourselves to. And you can see on the left, we've been perennially underspending. So uh, we're in the bottom 10% uh, of countries in all but two years this century. So incredibly weak total investment. And public investment, which is something like one pound in every five spent on investment, is, is a big part of that. Um, so overall, we're, we're, we're sort of, as Torsten was saying, quite clearly in this kind of low investment rut in the UK. And the big question for us today is how can public investment be used to help us get out of that, get out of that rut? Now, to manage expectations, as Torsten was saying, what uh, we're not going to be talking about today is private investment, human capital investment, more work to come on that from us uh, in the near future. But also, I want to say what we're talking about here is how we set public investment, not what we spend it on. So if you're looking for lots of uh, discussions about bridges to Northern Ireland and things like that, we're not going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about how you actually how you actually do this. But let me start by saying why this matters. Um, so kind of two bits to this. First, uh, there's lots of areas where the lack of public investment is really, is really showing up. Now, this chart is very small, you can't read it, but basically what it's, what it's showing you is um, uh, two categories of key uh, health infrastructure, beds on the left, MRI machines on the right, and it compares the UK in red to uh, a bunch of rich countries that we have uh, comparable data for. And you can see we've got the lowest hospital beds, bar one, and the fewest MRI machines, bar five. So we're very close to the uh, bottom of the distribution in terms of uh, health infrastructure, but you know that is um, playing a part in what we're seeing in the in the NHS, and you know we're seeing bumping up against some of these some of these things. But we in the paper we also talk about transport, housing, um, some areas where uh, you know this public investment, the lack of it is also showing up. It's also making us poorer, so public sector net worth, that's the broadest measure of uh, the government's balance sheet. That has fallen uh, by something like 50% in the past two decades and is incredibly negative. So our liabilities are bigger than our assets and we're the, the weakest country uh, in this group, except for Portugal, in terms of how we're doing on that overall sense. So uh, we're, we're, we're poorer given uh, this, this sort of difficult uh, position, investment has, has been um, a part of that. Um, but it's not just that investment is too low, it's also just, uh, just too volatile. And here I've shown uh, public sector net investment going back to the, the sort of post-war period. And if, if you ignore the sort of post-war ramping up and then ramping down, what really hits you here is the volatility of the series. So we've had booms and busts in, in public investment. Um, and if you compare us to um, 
other countries uh, uh, over a slightly shorter period, we, we are the most volatile in terms of our public investment in the OECD bar one country. And what we've really seen since the 1970s is what's been driving that volatility is a sort of series of cuts that have come particularly after recessions. So as governments tighten their belt after loosening policy during recessions, a big part of that belt tightening has been uh, has been cuts to public investment. And we've done something like 20% uh, cuts to public investment in each of those, each of those periods. Now, um, volatility is a problem in its own right, but it also makes it more difficult to actually do public investment. So if you think of the job of financing managers for uh, public investment projects, basically they cannot be uh, completely confident that their, their budgets will be in place and that you know, they'll be reticent to, uh, to roll out long-term commitments on, on projects. So the combination of that and how long it takes and how expensive it is to ramp up public investment project just means this volatility ends up also costing us uh, in terms of uh, what uh, what uh, uh, um, in terms of how we actually go about doing uh, this public investment. Now, if I sort of start to add on the kind of recent history of this, um, and I go back to um, uh, October 2021 here and look at what our plans were for, for public investment. You could see there was this ramping up uh, following the, the 2019 general election. The Boris Johnson government said it would do more. Public investment was a very broad-based ramping up of public investment to levels that had not been sustained since the, since the 1970s. So that was positive. But what we saw in November, you know there's going to be a downside here. The green line here is basically showing you the path following, uh, following the cuts in November last year. So following the mini budget, the fiscal situation deteriorated. And part of the way the government put its house in order was by big cuts to public investment. So we've, got, we've reversed something like 80% of the, the rise that had been uh, planned uh, after the 2019 general election. So a really, uh, a really big cut here. This is volatility basically in action. And this is a, this is a problem uh, because uh, public investment is generally found to have a really strong uh, impact on overall growth. It's uh, uh, often found to be the kind of key bit of public spending in terms of boosting growth. So this shows um, an across-country estimate uh, drawing on IMF work that basically shows a 1% boost to public investment, giving you back about 1.5% uh, of GDP uh, after five years. Now, the OBR treatment of this is, a, is, is smaller, but both of the, what these have in common is, you know, public investment does boost GDP and the OBR, uh, uh, their approach has it still rising um, and having a permanent effect on, uh, on, on GDP. So what's, what's going wrong here? So why, why are we really uh, seeing all this? Well, there's really um, two bits to this. One is um, there are really big incentives uh, for the government to, to cut investment, and it's really easy to do, uh, just simply. So politically, the incentive comes from uh, a sort of short-termism here. So um, you can 
Uh, it's much easier to cut a bridge that you were planning to build in a few years' time relative to sacking a nurse or, or even more toxically for the current government raising taxes. So there's, a, there's an incentive for this to be the sort of easiest margin of adjustment. We also have a fiscal framework that really, um, really focuses on debt, so it doesn't distinguish um, the role of public investment in creating uh, public assets that, that have value in their own right. So our fiscal framework also reinforces those incentives. And the, uh, the, if you're wondering what this picture is, this is a, a boat sailing too close to the wind. So our chancellors tend to, tend to, uh, tend to sail a bit too close to, their, to the fiscal wind um, and end up having to tighten their, their belts. They don't have sufficient buffers. They, they tighten their belts and they end up cutting investment to help with that. And then finally, a lot of um, public investment is under direct treasury control. So the IMF estimate estimate that something like 30% in the UK of public investment is controlled by subnational government. For other European countries, that's more like a half to three quarters, so much, much larger. So this is a lever that's that's basically very, very easy to pull. Now, so Public investments used for, for fine-tuning. How do we stop that? Well, I think the kind of obvious way into this is basically to, to sort of change our fiscal framework. And as we have talked about before, changing our fiscal framework in a way that recognises the role of investment uh, and explicitly recognises the role it has in creating assets, so having a current balance rule and a uh, net worth target rather than a narrow debt target would be a way of uh, reducing those incentives to to use um, uh, to use public investment as a sort of make weight here in terms of hitting uh, hitting the fiscal rules. But um, uh, one problem with that, I suppose, um, and you know, this is not an easy solution. This is not a sort of standard thing that every country does. We'd need more data infrastructure for one place that might be particularly tricky here is what happens if spending more on investment gives you higher debt. And we've seen the limits to, to fiscal policy bind very, very quickly when um, uh, it looks like spending has become unmoored from the sort of fiscal anchor as part of the, the sort of mini budget process. So clearly nervousness about, um, you know, trying to, uh, about making sure that um, our fiscal position looks sustainable. Now, uh, there's a lot of lines on this chart, but very simply, the top red line shows you just the sort of spending effect of doing more public investment. Uh, so here we're modelling a, a rise to 3% for public investment, that's about 70 billion to debt. And then the dotted red line shows what would happen under our best guess of what the OBR long run treatment looks like um, in terms of the GDP impact. So you get something like a 0.8% boost to, to GDP here, and that would offset some of the rise here. You'd still have higher debt, but debt would be broadly stable. So it's not completely clear here that um, you know the boost to GDP would be enough to get debt falling. So even in a, in a world where you change the fiscal framework, you still have quite strong incentives to use public investment to, uh, to actually go about cutting, uh, cutting your uh, deficit back and hitting uh, and reducing debt. The orange line, just uh, by way of comparison, shows you this sort of very decisive fall that you would get if 
um, you use the sort of IMF type estimates. So bigger, bigger estimates, bigger fall uh, in GDP. So you know that uh, there's definitely uncertainty about how much uh, all that uh, all that works. So let me finish by talking about how you address this kind of difficult situation where you still have incentives to cut public investment. So here, we think you might need to be more radical. So we have suggested that uh, rather than the Treasury uh, telling Parliament what um, uh, the numbers will be for public investment, for, depart for, for um, the overall envelope for public investment, you would reverse that and Parliament would have a vote on the overall envelope for uh, public investment that the Treasury would then, uh, would then go, and, go and try and hit. Um, and really what this is trying to do is to make it much more difficult for the government to use public investment as that um, make way, that margin of adjustment in its overall fiscal uh, approach. And I think what you would want to do uh, on top of that is basically improve the way we, uh, we um, monitor the quality of overall public investment in order to try and take some of the short-termism <laughs> out of the system. So what we've proposed is plenty more in the paper, but the key things are longer-term budgets for, uh, for both departments and for strategic projects, with more oversight from Parliament and the key um, players in this, the OBR and the National Infrastructure Commission, greater devolution for uh, spending decisions. So you would try and treat some of the sub-national government bits a bit more like uh, your departments as a, in, as, in the spending process. And finally, to uh, increase the transparency of your strategic decisions, the quality of your business case work, such that um, you had a much clearer open longer term strategy about what you're what you're doing in terms of overall public investment so let me finish by just saying we shouldn't pretend it's really easy to do lots and lots of uh, public investment and it won't solve all our problems but it's a very important step and would be one that would make a lot of difference very good thank you very much james And that point, the last point there about the what the Treasury should be definitely doing is we should definitely care about the quality as well as the quantity of this stuff because you're not getting the growth out of it unless the money is actually being invested in something uh, useful. So you can't just spend it on wherever you want. The, um, right, Jim, what do you reckon? Thank you very much, Tilson. Thanks for asking me to uh, join you. Uh, and well done, James, with the paper. Uh, I only saw this myself uh, an hour or so ago. Um, and I have to say how you've highlighted key parts here, uh, I really like. So congratulations to you guys. Um, is this on the record or not? Is the media that, here? That there is a camera. <laughs> so the, the media. And so behind the camera may be some journalists. So right. I just well, assume I it hope, is on the record. I hope, I ask it for two reasons, partly to influence how I say what I say. But uh, also, also uh, I hope it gets a lot of coverage um, because it, this is very consistent with uh, most of what I have started to become slightly obsessed about. Um, and let me give you a, a bit of more about that. So the first point is it, it seems to me as beautifully highlighted by the sort of nonsensical aspects of how it's counter uh, the cyclical trend. You know, we're, we're sort of stuck in a 
and it's not just to the UK, by the way. And you know, to really pull this off, and I spend a bit of time on this, we need to persuade the IMF to get rid of certain parts of the post-war convention. If you take it, for example, to the developing I was thinking to myself, I was watching some of these slides, you guys could go and should do this presentation in India. You know, and you, you think of like COVID or something I'm deeply involved in, antimicrobial resistance. The inability of countries to invest in preventive healthcare is just utter insanity. Um, and I propose to the IMF that for Article 4 series, they need to themselves start opining on countries' health systems. Um, but surprise, surprise, you get the typical response, well, we, we've got no expertise on health, so how could we do that? And one points out, well, you haven't really got a great deal of expertise on climate change either, but you've managed to discover. So, you know, it's the art of what matters. And uh, presumably there's a pretty strong link between investment spending of both public and private sector and productivity. And how the hell do we get out of this ridiculous state of affairs unless some, some new mental approach is adopted? And you've got all the ingredients presented to you right there. And the way, way I describe it, which doesn't play great with the current government, is a, a more imaginative, state-of-the-art, modern, let's call it golden rule, where, where instead of um, effectively defaulting to textbooks of 50 years ago, and we have institutions like the OBR, and I, I, I circle, I, I noticed that you highlighted a bigger role for the National Infrastructure Commission, which actually was created when I, in my ever so lengthy spell as a minister. Um, what do we have these things for, unless they're actually gonna be given an ability to influence our trend rate of growth? So just in the way the Bank of England was set up to have some greater independence about inflation targeting, and Plenty of things can be said either way about that. Why not ask the likes of those places, what would you set as a more credible fiscal framework? And I love the fact that you're focusing on net uh, wealth uh, or, or the public wealth, which doesn't actually come quite over so clearly in the written word, uh, because that's exactly the right, right, right approach. So you, and as an aside, instead of this sort of utter nonsense where three guys at the OBR are essentially trying to pretend they're even better at cyclical GDP forecasts for this year and next than anybody else, when they're not really trained to do that, but that is what guides, as we saw so ridiculously in this latest budget, how the budget is presented, in particular as it relates to this. The whole idea of... Uh, the investment allowances to really stimulate investment spending seems to me to be, for the private sector, much more rational than faffing around with corporation tax, which despite what textbooks showed when I was being taught in this weird social science a few hundred decades ago, there is no evidence that that's actually influenced any modern economy for, I don't know, three decades or longer. But why on earth is a private sector investment person going to take any of that seriously when it's only for two years, despite the fact there's a load of nonsense in there about, well, if it turns out debt to GDP is slightly better, we might do it for longer. I mean, it's just ridiculous. We're supposed to be a civilised country. And, uh, and you're putting too much pressure on the OBR system for that purpose. And they're not really trained in it. So why not 
have them and NIC and maybe others, uh, particularly to this crucial thing about public net wealth, what are those investments uh, which clearly result in a significant multiplier effect to those assets? And that's what the country needs, not for one parliament, for the next two parliaments, because when it comes to stuff like something that really matters for Northern Transport, uh, in my opinion, much more than HS2, is uh, so-called Northern Powerhouse Rail. You know, unless you're treating that on a multi-multi-governmental, uh, assuming any of them stay around for five years, you know, you're never going to be able to do any of this damn stuff because it falls into this ridiculous nonsense of the current rules. And it's, it, it's not kind of rocket science because if it was done in a way that gives those independent people credibility and power, then you don't have to worry about the markets as much suddenly deciding that, oh, that's a bit risky because it's being embraced by an independent body with credibility. And, uh, you know, that's the way it seems to me we are going to end up going. And I love this paper because it's pushed it more. Uh, last thing to say for now, as it relates, obviously, uh, given my role in the whole Northern Powerhouse stuff, um, the bit about devolution, is exceptionally important and the one part of the budget that I really would applaud and I'm shocked it's not getting more attention is the so-called trailblazer deals where for Greater Manchester and for the West Midlands it's the first serious initiative since certainly in my opinion and it's nothing to do with I'm not there uh, certainly since the government of that day that is really starting to think about giving local people who have proper accountability to link into the spending review in order that they can know what's more likely to be fruitful for investment for their reason, rather than many people sitting within a square mile from here, pretending that they know what's as good for Bournemouth as it is for Barrow, which is also equally insane. Thank you for inviting me. Great. It's always good to finish on insanity. Thank you very much indeed. Very good, Jim. Meg, how was... How has seeing how public spending actually happens gone for you? It's been a depressing uh, journey. I've been on the Public Accounts Committee uh, nearly 13 years. Oh, God, 13 years? I've been chair for eight, and it's really quite depressing to see many of the things that Jim highlighted. So we see optimism bias on projects. You know, this is going to be the best thing since sliced bread. Uh, the things that send a shiver down the collective spine of Public Accounts Committee members is... It's ground-breaking, world-beating, bold, <laughs> ambitious. Uh, they're all signs that everyone's invested heavily. Such so a doomster. They believe in it, but then you've got to look at all of the processes it goes through. Um, and there are often very inadequate business cases. And there are. Now I've been just doing some work on this, actually, about listing the different bodies. I won't go through them all now, but there's sort of six or seven gateways you go through in government before it gets screened. But well, one former chancellor... I shan't name as we are, who's listening, but uh, I'll tell you about it later. Said to me that uh, he often would sign off projects and think, oh, the public accounts can be, we'll be looking at this in a few years' time. So even with those systems, things go through, as we see repeatedly. We have poor procurement. Too often there's been an attempt, thank goodness, to professionalise that a bit in the Cabinet Office. Poor contracting that comes out of that. So contracts often worked on to the nth degree, but they're not managed well as well. So you've got all of that ill-defined outcomes and lack of evaluation built in. I mean, you know, we've recently looked actually at some projects that were evaluated in the Department for Education, but you're looking seven to 12 years. So no politician's gonna have the patience to wait 
And that's really one of the problems. In fact, when I was a minister, there were cuts coming around the department and I was the science minister in the Home Office. Among, I was one of those ministers that had lots of things. And they said, we want to cut the social science budget. And I went, no, don't cut the social science budget because no ministers in future will see the, the data coming through. But of course, it got cut anyway. What? Because it was, yeah. So I, I can say that in a room here because I think everyone would everyone be, on wants, my side. Everyone wants social science spending, <laughs> particularly of independent research institutes. <laughs> Government, cough up the money. But, but, we, but also the stop-start thing is absolutely the, the critical thing. And so, you know, don't, I, I hate budgets. Budgets are a chance for a chancellor to stand up and do something clever. Then very often things aren't uprated or changed the year Sorry. after or the year after that. Um, everyone looks at that. Look at the whole of government accounts. Look at what the infrastructure commission is doing. Look at some of those other, there are other data that we do not talk about enough. Everyone focuses on the budget like uh, crazy. And actually, there are some very perverse things that happen in budgets that don't necessarily deliver. And of course, they are short term by their nature. But look, we, I mean, one of the things you highlight is about Parliament's role. Obviously, the Public Accounts Committee established in, uh, in the 1860s by William Gladstone, you know, has been going a long time doing this stuff. But it's not just us that does it. Now, we are increasingly working with our sister committees where we have assistance where we can, we can guest on their committees. They work increasingly with the National Audit Office, which of course is 950 people in here in London and in Newcastle who puts independent support Parliament uh, in its work, independent completely of government, independent indeed of Parliament. We can't tell uh, the CNAG, the Control Auditor General, what to do, but he <coughs> serves us and keeps an eye on it. And they produce great reports, lots of good pictures, which we, which is a good way of explaining, but seriously, it's a charts and graphs which explain the numbers in a, in a very logical way. So if anyone's got an interest in a particular area and you're not looking at that, do. But look, I think the, the, the devolution stuff is really interesting. I agree. I don't, I have hands, cards on the table. I started my political career in 1994 dealing with devolved neighbourhoods, pram pushing distance. This was, and that ancient says it's before the days of the internet. <laughs> so I do believe in devolving decisions and money to the most appropriate local level and the best politicians, the confident politicians, give money away and think on the 20-year horizon. We have to deal with today, tomorrow, next week and every crisis that might arise between now and 20 years, but we should have that longer-term view and too often we don't. We've had huge political turbulence recently, which hasn't helped, but we do need that much longer-term view and I think that if you, you're on, in a local area, people are seeing their voters, their constituents, the citizens much more face-to-face -to -face more regularly than you are if you're in the area of Whitehall. Um, I mean, in fact, I said to the former head of the Treasury, you're, sorry, sorry if you're a Treasurer civil servant here or watching, um, you've got some very young people in the, in, in the Treasury, very similar backgrounds, and he did, couldn't disagree with my analysis. So, so they've been going to the surgeries of members of the Public Accounts Committee and visiting to see what happens when policy cleverly worked out by very clever people in Whitehall, hits the reality of people's lives. And you could say, actually, you need to do the sim similar for big public investment. You know, you can do with, the great one was with the Department for Transport when we look at their modelling. There was a no uproar in the room, actually. You're surprised how what MPs get interested about when they were talking about the modelling and how they valued time or travelling on a train as worthless. And we were going, but we love being on a train because it's very bad. But they basically, they take into account formulae and calculations on what investment will mean and not necessarily on what it actually real, really means for people. A couple of other things I think that are important. This annual budgeting is a problem. Now, we, we, we of course, agree, I should stress, the Public Accounts Committee, you need absolute rigour. You do need annual budgeting because there's a whole process around that, being honest with the numbers. But we are moving to the position, and we haven't not complete, we don't quite, haven't quite completely defined it. We do think, though, that some of the big defence projects, for example, the idea that it's a cash-in, cash-out thing each year is, not, is mad. And we also need to look at making sure that we're thinking about that more generally so that you're giving money to local areas. I mean, the number of times money is dished out through ridiculous bidding processes, which in themselves are not logical or sensible. 
um, and they they arrive they're given you know to the shovel ready projects because it's all a bit late and it's now you know January or February and they've got to spend it by the end of the year. It's actually just bonkers. It's money just being poured down the drain and very rarely delivering anything sensible. So if it's that late, there should be some mechanism that it can roll over. But of course, the Treasury will go all up, you know, Definitely. terribly upset about that. Um, uh, and, and we never get, I do say you know, to Treasury officials, you're just a cash in, cash out operation, really, aren't you? You know, you give it out and if it, you're going to count it up and you don't, if, you, if it's not spent, you take it back. And, you know, and, and that's really very much what it is. But short termism is a big problem. Um, and the other thing, uh, I was going to say, well, I just took some notes here. The increasing transparency, again, I think uh, pointing back, to, there is one of the things that we try to do on the committee is when we're not happy with the way something's going, uh, we try and get in as early as we can, but certainly if it's failing, we've got in very, very hard. We say, talk to us about what you should be reporting to Parliament. So I remember um, years ago, when I was first an MP, Charles Clark was presenting the Identity Cards Bill. This was the second time because it had fallen at the first at the general election in 2005. Um, and then uh, he reduced interest again. I'd just been elected, and he announced on the floor of the house. He was very good at managing the house. That he would produce a regular report on identity cards, and he described on the floor of the house what would be included in that report. So the civil service, in its great uh, professional approach, dives in and does exactly what he said on the floor of the house. I then became the identity cards minister, uh, and I had to rue the day that he did that because it didn't measure any of the right things. And so the numbers were misunderstood by lots of journalists and reported about costs going up. And sometimes things were going really well, but it was presented because of the way it was presented. So we are trying to make sure that when the government departments deal with big projects, they can explain it in a way that MPs and the public understand in a way that we want to see it. And so increasingly now we say to them, well, when you, if you promise you're going to report to Parliament, can we talk to you now about what you're going to include in that? And we're doing that. So um, HS2 has become more transparent partly as a result of that, but there is lots more coming down the line. But don't think that Parliament's not interested. I think that the Parliament very much is, and it's not just the PAC, I would stress that. But we need to make sure it, the more transparency, the clearer the information, the more we devolve the most appropriate things, the more transparent it will be because people, more people will have skin in the game. Great, thank you very much, Meg. <laughs> and obviously in the end, the whole thing got scrapped anyway. So it didn't matter what was in his reports. The, anyway. I, should, the, I shouldn't say actually, I was at HS, I was at Euston on uh, Tuesday. Oh, right. Speaking of scrapped. So, we can, so a huge big hole in the ground. The impact on the supply chain, on confidence in businesses. One, yep. I said, so where do you go if you're going to do tunneling? Not at HS, you know, to Houston and now, you know, Canada, Dubai. Yeah. The danger is with the stop start, we just lose the confidence and more money goes, you know, people, and we lose the expertise and we lose that. The, one of the great things that makes UK PLC at its best so good. And that pushes up costs for the oh, when you want to. Okay. Anyway, right, Jill, last but definitely not least. <laughs> Okay, well, Jim and Meg have already sort of given you a sort of quite a smorgasbord of things you could do to improve the current uh, current mess. So I'm just going to add a couple of more more things to your buffet uh, lunch. Where is lunch? Anyway, but anyway, <laughs> we post lunch. No one's getting lunch. One o'clock post lunch. Anyway, discuss. Uh, very continental. Um, I think if your fiscal rules lead you to make the decision the government made on HS2, then you do need to think about your fiscal rules because something which basically adds the costs and delays the benefit for whatever. I mean, why not just stand up and say, actually, I'm spending two billion extra on HS2 in the last year, which is within anyone's margin of error. Who cares? I mean, frankly, do think about that. And hopefully that sort of thinking is going on in government. That's partly symptomatic of a sort of wider problem that we always think of things government does. And we see that on both on capital projects 
and on regulations, certainly in terms of the costs and not in terms of the benefits. Because frankly, if all you were fussed about is the costs, don't do it. That's the best outcome. You're doing it because you think the benefits are going to exceed the costs by quite a big margin, you hope. So uh, go ahead. And I think there's quite a good case for saying once something is deemed important enough to get into your capital portfolio, just do it and get on with it. Because actually, don't put up the cost against yourself by doing it at nut bar speed. But actually, you know, get those benefits in as early as you possibly can for that capital commitment. So, uh, so I think, James, focusing on both sides of the balance sheet is really important. I want to just echo Jim's point that it's not just capital spending that's a victim of the voracious demand to maintain current service levels. It's also preventative spending. We saw in the pandemic the impacts of low levels of contingency in spending. So a whole bit of things that basically are always sacrificed. You can almost sort of go down the chart of what's thrown out of the balloon when there is pressure on current services. So quite a lot of it is, I think, a function of being a bit too poor a country with an unwillingness to raise sufficient levels of tax to maintain what is viewed as a publicly acceptable level of current services. So I think those are things that we also need to take into account when we're looking for competition at the margin. Now, where I'm going to, I mean, I always love a good bit of institutional reform um, and things like that, never knowingly under-institutionally reformed. And I do think there is definitely always something to be said for raising the political price of doing the wrong thing. And so I do like those. I, however, sorry, Meg, I'm slightly more sceptical that Parliament is the obvious vehicle to do lots of these things because we have this sort of nice idea that Parliament's one thing and the government's another thing. And that does suggest you haven't quite worked out how government in the UK works, particularly with quite a thumping majority, because usually what the government wants, Parliament will do. So, OK, there's a bit of an embarrassment factor, but is it... Is it sufficient? So uh, the bit I'm going to, so I think one of the interesting things, we've talked a lot about the NIC and the OBR. I'm going to throw another bunch of initials into the mix and look at the role of the Climate Change Committee, which I think is potentially quite instructive as to what you might want to do. The Climate Change Committee does two things, which I think are really interesting. One of which is it does what I think Jim was talking about. It advises on what is the appropriate and the MPC doesn't do that. The MPC just takes the target the government writes in the remit letter. Whereas the Climate Change Committee says, you've got your long-term target. This is what you need to do in an upcoming five-year period to be on track for that. I think it'd be really interesting if we had something that would do a similar thing and actually say, this is what we think you might need to do on the investment side. And these are sort of broad sectors that you want to do it. I'm then going to make a different institutional suggestion which is, and I think uh, credit to Ollie Bartram in the audience from Institute of Government, probably should be on your panel rather than me, uh, reminding me of David Gork's proposal for an Office of Spending Evaluation. I don't think the Treasury is the person to do the independent assessment of the quality of an investment proposal, much as I love my colleagues in the Treasury, but they are frankly too interested in making the numbers add up at the end of the day. And I think it would be better, it might be a role for the NAO doing some more ex-ante looks or for some sort of thing to actually say, actually, is this a good quality investment? 
in the sort of broader areas that we need them. Will it bring benefits? Are the plans realistic uh, in terms of timeframes, in terms of budgeting, and should this make it into that? I do think there's a very strong case for Parliament monitoring big projects. And my example there is another set of initials, which is the Olympic budget, the ODA, in the way in which that after the big budget reset we had to do, uh, the ODA committed to open book reporting on the progress on the Olympic Stadium with the DCMS committee. And I think that was a good discipline. Obviously, there was a very ferocious deadline there about getting the stuff built on time. Um, but I think it would be really good if Parliament could engage on those actually progress reports on those big projects and discuss that. So those are my bits of suggestions. But I think this is a really important conversation to be having about how we both raise the quantity, but also the quality of public investment, while not over-privileging physical infrastructure, physical capital versus other forms of capital. You know, I would give your example, I know you don't set this about sort of, you know, is it more important to have a road built to cut some bloke in a car's commuting time by a couple of minutes, or to have a childcare network that enables uh, that bloke to go to work at all, because otherwise he's got to stay at home looking after the kids. All right, good. Thank you very much indeed, Joe. <laughs> Lots of smorgasbording. The, um, and we're very liberal here, so you can eat whenever you like. <laughs> right, the, um, right, OK, let's, um, let's go through this. Let's do a bit on the problem, and then let's go through the, like, the answers bits in the like, macro answers and institutional reform answers. So, but to get us going on the pro problem, let's do a poll. So I told you it was Slido, <laughs> and I told you we were unimaginative, so hashtag public investment. Go in the, in the interweb. You need to go on the interweb, people. Right, here's the poll, and I'm going to ask you guys what you think as well. So, and you only allowed one answer to this. Okay, so wh what's the biggest problem? Is the biggest problem politics? It's easier to cancel the bridge than it is to fire the nurse or whatever James said. Yeah. Is it the economic slash fiscal framework? You've got fiscal rules that give you a strong incentive to cut public investment, so you do. The, um, is it democracy? It's all of your fault because the anti-growth coalition is actually in charge and doesn't want anything built anyway, so it's all just impossible. So politicians think, I thought I was going to get clapped for building this railway line, but now these mad people in Buckinghamshire are up in arms and it wasn't <laughs> worth the hassle in the first place. I was at an event in Sheffield last week where someone put their hand up and their question was, I am a member of the anti-growth coalition and, and it's great. The, um, so it does exist, it turns out. The, um, uh, or do you think um, we're persistently low and that's a very good thing? Look how lean the British state is. We don't do much investment either because, the, and it's good <laughs> the private sector can do it all. Or, uh, you know, we seem to have coped okay. Yes, the kind of potholes have got larger by the day, but you don't mind that because, you know, you want those cyclists to fall off their bike and crush their wheels. So, which of those do you think it mainly uh, is? James. Well, uh, can I have a cop-out no, combination? No, just no, It's definitely a problem. So I'm ruling out number four. And for me, it's the well, way... That's very bold of you, giving you a written paper about <laughs> it. <laughs> the way, it's, the way, it's the way politics and the economics it's interact, it's basically. It's so um, we, we have this incentive. Politicians you know, want to take the easy option here. And our fiscal rules basically allow it and in, in some ways actually encourage it. Right, that's a cop-out. Jill, can you do better than that? <laughs> Probably not. I think it's a different sort of politics, which is the demands of current services and the political pressure that comes through that combined with your sort of fiscal rules, which don't differentiate. Okay. 
Yeah, I'm afraid to say if I have to choose between politics and economics, I tip towards politics because it, but it's much more complex. Mm. It's not political parties. Mm. It's the system. Mm. It's the, you know, like take a hospital. Who want, want, who's going to put in a new MRI scanner if you've got every department asking for a bit of capital investment? You try to keep everyone happy all the time. Mm. So you end up okay. scattering it around. And then I think the other thing about politics is that stop start. We have a four year, five year cycle. Mm. It's a long time since we've had consensus across the two main parties. So nothing can be, you can't, it's very difficult to get any new project up and running in f almost impossible in five years. And so you have to have some consensus okay. and we don't have that at the moment. But, Jim, but, wait, wait a second, you... Jim's goes, Jim's goes. Sorry. Go on, Jim. <laughs> Um, I, I thought this was a question for the audience. Yes. Did, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all voting. We're giving them a chance. I didn't vote. listen to every single option that closely, but um, <laughs> I used to think it was something about our democracy. Uh, so there's definitely something, you know, with having bricks stamped on my head, and you look at, you look how, for all its evils, and of course we hate every single thing about China these days. Apparently, they're pretty good at doing long-term infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So there is something about that, but I think it's because they're not a democracy. <laughs> well, that's why I said <laughs> I used to think that, but it's now so much bigger. It's it's the it's the group think conventional wisdom of the past forty years about the the importance of debt to GDP in any one moment in time, because every conventional form of thinking about it has been blown sky high by reality. And it's not the right premise anyhow. If you go back to the creation of uh, the Eurozone's deficit rules, it was only done in the stupid way it was done in order for the Germans to allow Italy in. It actually wasn't what anybody was trying to create a proper framework. And it, that's the sort of thing that goes on all over the place. So just get out of that way of thinking about it. Think about the public wealth created by investment, which people that really do independent thinking economics, typically all, can't understand why we don't do it. So it's the economics. Right, let's hear what the punters had to say. The um, democracy has spoken and wants to blame politics. <laughs> What's quite unsurprising is that the punters don't think it's their fault. Only 3% <laughs> of you think it's your own fault. The, um, but politics is getting a lot more blame than uh, economics. Which I think they're just mixing it. Fiscal rules of politics, really. Mm. So I think that's... Oh, right. Okay. So you're all copping out together. <laughs> right. Very good. Okay. Right. Let's move on to then uh, uh, a bit on the problem and then let's get to answers in for most of the conversation. So there's a lot of good questions coming in on Slido. There's quite a few which are in the space where you finished on, which mm. is, is this really an investment problem mm. or is it really kind of investment plus prevention you know, it's like long-termist related spending here and we shouldn't think about these um, differently. So somebody asked, you know, should we include all the, should we, here we go. So Jim mentioned preventative healthcare is one on preventative healthcare, but like rejecting often what you get in these debates is, well, st stop having uh, these policies that treat capital spending differently mm. because it's not fair, you're privileging transport mm. over mm. childcare or mm. blah. The, um, uh, but you're making a slightly nuanced point, which is mm. not, it's, you were happy with some distinction, but you want long term and all long term stuff. Well, I think the two. I think the two things. One of which is what do we what do we think of it as infrastructure? I mean, what sort of in, the different sorts of infrastructure? And frankly, I think our notion of infrastructure as being big things that require concrete is a bit out of date. Uh, but I think there's an also thing that there are other sort of demands on sort of current services like spare capacity, yep. like prevention that always gets quick. Now, I think there's a really interesting thing about have we saddled ourselves with the really old fashioned, out of date definition of what counts as investment? 
Uh, and I think there's a risk that we have and that we make stupid decisions because of it. The, the, I mean, at one level, obviously, it's true, right? Yeah. So that must be true to a degree. Is there actually a better alternative is my always slight pushback. So you can't, you don't, what you do, if you want to treat any of this stuff differently, you're always going to have a dividing line somewhere. So you need a better alternative. I mean, you can ring fence prevention. You can ring fence. I mean, I think the Tony Blair Institute for Global Tony Blair last week said something like you should ring fence 10% of health budgets for oh, yes. prevention uh, or so whatever, something Tony like Blair. that. I'm not with Tony Blair, but I think that's a sort of, that's basically saying there are things that we know are too easy to raid when there is pressure on current services and we need to raise the political pain yeah. of raiding them. That's, uh, I don't know, Jim may have better ideas, that's, but I think that's... that's what they're trying to get at is that rather than just regard all these things as slush fund to be dipped into when the going gets rough, then, you know, we'll do it. There are other sort of budgets that always, you know, are always going to be cut first. We used to use the nationalised industries, external financing. When I was at the Treasury ages ago, and they all nationalised. That's why there's no investment in nationalised industries. You could justify privatisation on the base of it because those were always the first place you would go is you just starve them of investment cash. Yeah, if this paper was being written 20 years ago, it would all have been that. Yeah. It would all have been about starving. <laughs> 40 years ago. Well, quite a while yeah. ago. Right, there's a question for Jim here, which is basically agreeing with you. Slightly dangerous territory, so I'm not sure I should be sharing this, but it's basically, is Jim, like, do you want an autocrat? Uh, <laughs> basically... Are you bidding for it, Jim? <laughs> <laughs> Think carefully. Only if it means getting rid of the current owners at Manchester United. <laughs> I get that That's in a different I get that in anywhere. Um, no, uh, I, want, I want evidence and time to deliver a more sensible economic framework doesn't require an autocrat. Our democracy could do mm. it perfectly well. A um, couple of things to f mm. follow up on it that links to what Jill said. Um, and you touched, mm. you, you briefly mentioned something when we were in the green room before. I, I'm, amongst other things, I'm currently sitting on this independent uh, commission of the Times newspaper about health mm. service. And I said, I'd only do it if we could really consider big ideas. And she's like, like what? I said, well, why do we actually spend more on health as a share of GDP mm. than education, for a start, mm. without mm. really knowing what the data shows? And surprise, surprise, in the 70s, mm. we spent more on education as a mm. share of GDP than health. Mm. And linked to the preventive thing, mm. as evidenced mm. by the last decade, although it's overall been constrained, what is effectively mm. never-ending mm. maintenance spending mm when the, the NHS itself has absolutely zero direct incentive to invest in something to prevent mm. obesity, for example, never mind supporting new antibiotics and making sure this mm. you know, thing that was so state-of-the-art for about six months of getting vaccines in 100 days, what, mm. you know, where's that gone? You know, it's mad. Because, as our AMR review showed, if we don't do something about these things, and we had 29 recommendations for the world, it's going to cost us $100 trillion. And to, to not happen, that happen would cost $42 billion, less than one-tenth of a percent of global GDP. Mm. You know, and so that's kind of, these things have... But we're not having a global autocrat yet. No, but these things have huge positive multipliers. Mm. Yep. Very good. Right, one for you, James, which is on... Public, private. How do we think about this public investment? So there is a another one issue on like the definition of public mm. investment is where's the boundary? Other forms of long-term spending. Another one is um, 
we call all this investment, that implies there's a return mm. on it, but some public investment doesn't have a return on it. How do we think about that differently? Yeah, I, th I think it's true. Yeah. And when, and when, you, um, when you're comparing across countries, you have to keep in mind that some countries do, do you know, a lot of our energy infrastructure, other bits of infrastructure are in private hands. Um, that's not the case elsewhere. Health, it's all, it's all the different. So, you know, there are different choices to be made about where the, where the line is, is drawn in, in all this. And so, you know, I, we we're thinking about the issue of how you set out for government, what, what is good policy. It feels to me like there's a two parts to this. So what, what should the government be doing? Is health the kind of natural place where the government is the only actor, essentially? Um, and that drives the health system, and that's something we've decided, and that's a you know core strength of our health system. But given that, you have to then think about within that, what what are we investing in? Do we have the right amount? Thing. So you know that that uh, we haven't said a lot today about you know where we are relative to different bits of spending, but that is really key. Once you've decided what the government does, do it well. Very good. Can I just a very boring change, yes. which is we love boring if, changes. If we had sort of 10 to 15 year baselines for public spending you would sort of score the spending but you'd also start to pick up some of the benefits of this stuff at the moment we have a sort of gap between the five-year spending horizons and none of these things have you know particular significant benefits you never score any of those and then you have the sort of 30-year fiscal risks or scary obr but we never look at those things in the time when they're supposed to generate benefits and the treasury i mean yeah is always skeptical about spend to save because it always thinks well we get the spend bit we never seem to get the save bit but actually if you could do that i think you could actually change mindsets a bit and it really takes time for it to build doesn't it yeah. Yeah. proper evaluation mm. now let's go through we've got some other on answers so we're going to go do a bit let's do a bit of decentralization let's do fiscal and then someone wants to know how you lot want to splurge the extra cash then um, so uh um uh Meg, why don't you have a first go at this one, which is like, how much decentralisation? So like, there's a consensus, I think, <coughs> across political parties that we want more decentralisation. As Jim says, in theory, these trailblazer deals agreed at the budget are quite a big deal. So in practice, let's wait and see what actually happens, because what devolution deals end up being is not always what they end up getting announced. So let's <laughs> see what actually happens. But in theory, treating large combined authorities as they're in their own right for spending views is a big deal, a big change. How far do you want to go? How radically are you feeling? I, I think quite. I mean, I, I wouldn't put a figure on it particularly, but it's but, very bold of you. Well, because but I think you could certainly you could you could nudge up to fifty percent depending on the issue. So, Manchester and well, if you think Manchester and health, for example, they've taken on a lot. So if you take you just add up together the local hospitals and other primary care, you're getting quite a long way up that for the budget that would have been carved out for Manchester anyway. So it depends on what you're looking at. Okay. But I do think you need to have a better way of assessing value for money at local level. There is a very poor infrastructure around combined authorities. Mm. Councils have not had audit reports on 12% of councils haven't had this year's audit reports. Some haven't had them for two or three mm. years. There's a crisis in the audit market and people say, well, that's boring, but it is actually vital because that means councillors are flying blind and officers indeed as well, making decisions and judgments. Yep. And they're not always being called out for bad decision making. So we need to make sure we're investing in our local elected representatives to understand the importance of this and making sure that we really value the, the local audit situation because if we don't, 
you'll see what we've seen. How many councils fail? You know, had Thurrock, had Thurrock had an audit? Yeah, uh, no, uh, Thurrock, well, Thurrock, uh, there were some of them, like Croydon, um, had, had, I mean, some of them had had audits, but the, not enough of an opinion, doesn't, well, won't get into the whole audit market issue, but you've got Croydon, Thurrock, Slough, uh, uh, Spellthorn. I mean, you know, there's loads and loads of councils that are having problems. The good news is that Bournemouth had a, a letter from the auditor that said, you ought to think about this risky investment before uh, the leader then resigned. Um, but that's a sign that maybe there's some tension in the system that's working. But without that, you could you could just you just got to make sure you've got that's where if I was in the Treasury or anywhere in government or in Parliament I'd be saying you want to make sure that you've got a really clear line of sight yeah. so that you've got you're sure the assurance process is in place you don't want to control it from the centre well probably <laughs> the Treasury does <laughs> but you want to make sure that that, that, that you've got they are they stand or fall on, on what they they lose because, because in the end the government's the provider of last resort if it all goes wrong exactly and some of those examples you've just given us are like really good examples it's definitely not all investment is a good investment no, like Thurrock exactly. should definitely not have done some investment exactly. like they wouldn't That's, all be in the mess Spellthorn had borrowed I mean what did they buy uh, or they bought Look, I mean, they're, they're, they're in their budget was only 10 million a year or something, and they bought and they say invested a billion over a billion. I mean, it was ridiculously. I can't remember the figures off the top of my head, but I mean, the gearing was all wrong. And 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 buying. So we looked at examples where people were buying hotels and shopping centres outside their area. The Public Works Loan Board changed the rules, so you couldn't invest out of area. So invest to earn, but you need to know your market. And you know, also the department. I, mean, I could go on. I could go on about let's, let's, it forever, but I think I don't do that. None of you do that, again. right? Let's do yeah. let's do fiscal rules. I know this is obviously for James getting very excited. So <laughs> the, um, there's a good question here, which is: so we want to use public sector net worth as a key rule to take account of mm. the full balance sheet, the costs, and the benefits. Mm. As Jill points out, if you didn't think there were mm. benefits, you probably shouldn't have done it in the first place. It is hard. Mm. It's basically the question, James. Yeah, and, uh, and um, I, I wouldn't totally agree with this, that it's um, something that needs to be, you know, have lots of development. We've had uh, net worth statistics for a long time. Net worth as a measure is less cyclical than debt. Um, if, if you kind of look at it relative to GDP, the, the, the issue here is because you're, you're taking into account assets, you know, those asset valuations can move around. Uh, but it tends to be that the, the sort of level of those asset valuations moves rather than um, you know you you end up with extremely different forecasts. So if you have a bit like have we uh, how we have with debt, if you have a net worth improving as opposed to a debt falling rule, you sort of take into account those kind of level shifts that you get depending on what's you know what's happening with with things like asset valuations as well. But you know the key the key bit that's that's been missing is is just a, a fiscal framework that actually accounts for stuff. And what we've seen time and time again with fiscal rules is what gets excluded, gets exploited, and you end up in a situation where you have uh, uh, fiscal rules that are driving bad policy. Yeah, it's actually worth saying. So we focus here on the problem with using net debt rather than net worth as being that it discourages you from doing investment. It also encourages you to do other crazy stuff like trying to flog off some student loans uh, at very bad value for money because you get to count the ca you get to count the sale yeah. and you don't count the loss of the asset, yeah. Yeah. Which, is, which is you know suboptimal, I'd have thought, in general. Right, to wrap us up, there's a question here for all of the panel, the, if I can find it, which is a very good one. Here you go. It's the most popular question, in fact, you know, so and democracy does rule at the Resolution Foundation. Uh, what do you want to spend 50 billion quid on over five years? The, um, no, obviously, Cap it doesn't get on capital. Yeah, you can't just spend this on everything you like. The, um, <laughs> not personally, you can't have like, you know, lots of tasty meals. Mm -hmm. What would, what's the, what's the top priority in terms of um, uh, public, extra public investment? Jill? I have absolutely no clue. I thought you were going to say net zero. Official, so. 
Mm, that's very you know. Well, maybe I mean somewhere it'll have to go on net zero or whatever. But um, you know, is that the thing to give us our fastest growing economy? Quite a lot of that actually, yeah, is some of the stuff that's going to have very little return if you spend loads of money on CCS and stuff yep. like that. So uh, CCS has failed three times. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I think very difficult, and you wouldn't want anyone just to make a decision like that off the top of their head. So don't worry because we're not actually in charge of the country. <laughs> it's totally fine, Joe. It's totally fine. It's fantasy. It's, it's totally fantasy just, spending. It's just, we're having a conversation. No one's, not, the Treasury officials are listening, but they're not going to go and do it. <laughs> <laughs> Meg. Okay, so I would spit it because I'm cautious. Mm. Uh, we're not put all my eggs in one basket. Definitely digital transformation. We're seeing that within Whitehall, but we can see, and I represent Shoreditch, so I guess I would say that as well. And we've got some of the best tech mines, uh, and that's a great asset that we could, if we boost that we've got an asset to sell around the world. I think on net zero, there is definitely, th I, I would be very cautious about things like CCS, lots of money gone into that and delivered nothing. But where we need, we'd need to see some of those proven technologies that we could be, we should be further ahead on um, and making sure that we are managing for the just transition mm. as well. But that's everything from mm. factories for batteries to, um, to to some of the big kit that we need to build. We've got the natural infrastructure. Then I would want to make sure some of that was spent being spent if I'm allowed to stretch it into sure. research and development, mm. because I think you need to be looking at the next technologies, the things that are coming over the horizon. Um, and then there would be, frankly, some physical things that would still be good for the economy, mm. like dealing with the backlog of maintenance in schools and hospitals and making sure they've got the childcare physical facilities that you would need for early years education. So I'd want to see some money going into particularly education and health, health capital. Great. Jim? Um, if it was 50 billion as the exact amount. <laughs> that would go far away. Uh, <laughs> some, <laughs> some large amount. <laughs> with a net worth rule, then how I'm going to answer it, I wouldn't have to choose. But it would, if it was 50 billion, I don't think it would be enough for both. But yeah. it would rise up there above anything else, given my current mm. stock of knowledge, would be Northern Powerhouse Rail. Uh, you know, in my day life, I spend a lot of time chairing Northern Powerhouse Partnership meetings and Northern Gritstone meetings, which involve lots of people from different parts of the North. The problems of getting live board meetings rather those are even worse than they were in COVID because of the dreadful, dreadful and deteriorating mm. states. You guys down here sometimes have no idea just how good your transport system mm. is. And I think it's pretty true all over the place, but to get the Northern Powerhouse functioning a bit like how London does, that is multiple times more important than HS2. So that's certainly one of them. The other one is to, I'd, I'd almost consider going as far as splitting DH into two, or if not, certainly ring fencing, preventive health spending, where you would boost together with having, controversially, a target for by, let's say 2035, actually reducing the share of spending in uh, NHS. That's definitely controversial. Because throw that in at the end. It is insane. Yeah, I think 10 years may be a bit optimistic. All right, okay, we're not, we're not doing a health I agree with the general principle. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, it's so that's what you're looking at. 2040, I don't know. Right, Whatever. James. Well, uh, splurge on. so I think there's two bits to this. One is you, your gaps in your, I think I'm just going to end up agreeing with Jim here, by the way. One is the gaps in your sort of social infrastructure. So, you know, um, places where you're lacking, for example, in, in health, that could, that could make a real difference. The other bit, and I think this is super important, aligning your investment strategy to your overall economic strategy, and putting that on a long-term basis. So yep. what are we doing to get the country growing? How does that work? I think, you know, um, 
if, if you think of us as becoming a powerhouse services economy, then what you're trying to do is is take advantage of your services your services industries like your um, and bring people together to to strengthen those industries outside of London as well as in London. So northern transport, for example, so you get agglomeration effects, um, would be something that would it's be incredibly great. powerful. Yeah, I mean, Elizabeth Line, one in six rail journeys is now on the Elizabeth Line. So right. I have absolute sympathy yeah. with that point. Oh, right, right. Um, so, so I'm going to I'm going to come back to you. Oh. You surprised that <laughs> Come on then. I'm going I'm going to give you cycle lanes, not for the full fifty billion, but for an example <laughs> of something we don't spend very much money on generally that actually offers huge multiple benefits across Chiswick, across prevention, no across obesity, and take down <laughs> all those small <laughs> projects you don't do because you know, I've it, totally lost control. We're on to cycle lanes. <laughs> it's all gone badly. We're like getting into the anti-cyclist rows. <laughs> The, um, there's going to be lycra war and it's going to be a problem for everybody. Right. Uh, can we thank our panel for all their thoughts today? Uh, and thank all of you for investing your time. You see what I did there? <laughs> investing your time with us. I would encourage you to keep investing in a better Britain because that's what we need. And you should invest even more time in Economy 2030 events over the next few months, building up to the final launch in the autumn. There's going to be lots of food for thought about what an economic strategy for Britain should look like. So please join us then. Have a good day, everyone, whether it's lunch or not. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.